Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and another gathering of noises from across the island and across the sea. This week we spend some time in Balbriggan at a brand new concert hall with a brand new choir, and we contemplate talking on the concert stage with violinist Patrick Rafter, and Orit Gatt thinks about Patrick Swayze at a feminist art exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. But we begin up the coast a bit. Last week, you may have heard music from the Maynooth University Chamber Choir on Culture File, and from the reaction we had, you liked what you heard. The director of that choir, Michael Dawson, was in studio with us last week, and I mentioned then his other role is as CEO of the Irish Institute of Music and Song, and the brand-new 400-seat concert hall, The Lark, in Balbriggan. Well, this time we're all going back to Michael's, as Culture File's Louise McMahon arrives in Balbriggan to meet the people behind the venture. Michael Michael T. Dawson, that's our one, and his father, Michael P. Dawson, as well as Professor Joe Michael Scheiber, who's drilling singers and choral composers at the Institute of Music and Song. Let's, let's take a little bit of a walk down the stairs towards the auditorium where the IIMS choir are rehearsing. And we take a look at some of these quotes on the wall. There's one there from Brendan O'Carroll. Uh, the only sound uh, sweeter than a bird song is laughter. Nobody gets between me and my microphone, Sinead O'Connor. And there's one there from, from the chairperson. Well, oh, he's oh. The <laughs> yeah, he just took the poetic just, uh, liberty here. He's the non-musician that is the only one that's a non-musician. It says nothing worthwhile can be achieved uh, easily. I love music, uh, and fortunately, I, I've uh, I can share that passion with uh, with uh, Michael, uh, and indeed my wife Maria, and it, uh, we we've been sort of working on this for oh well over twelve years when Michael first set up um, summer camps. Uh, after summer camps, uh, there was a big demand for the teaching of our kids music and. Um, he had to employ himself and a few other teacher, teachers to, to fulfil that demand. Now, over the years, that started to occupy uh, at least four rooms in my house, uh, the band room in the back garden and the garage in the back garden. So, and it also was in the community centre and the church. They were all over the place. So we had this vision that we might find a location someday to bring it all together under the one roof. Fantastic. What I love about it as well is this Georgian house that all the ideas seem to have stemmed from. So the Georgian house it goes back to 1750. It's the oldest house, I think, in Balbriggan. It was built by the Hamilton family who were given Balbriggan by King George. Eventually uh, were responsible for building the uh, uh, linen factory here. Uh, which had the exclusive uh, contract to provide Queen Victoria uh, with her uh, stockings. Uh, and indeed, John Wayne, also uh, in one of his movies, John Wayne will have been quoted as saying, you know, I'm going to pull up my, long, my, my Balbriggeners. They built a house, which is Bedford House, for their son, who they were appointed director of Balbriggan and St George's Church just down the road. So over the years, that house was occupied by various different reverends. Sir Charles Benson's house, right? Benson uh, was better known uh, for the fact that he was a European authority on singing birds. And when we tracked down one of his uh, books to host it here in our library, we discovered that, that he had this amazing passage about the lark. So hence the name lark came about. The lark doesn't sing when it's sitting, but rather when it's in flight and it's ascending, it starts a singing symphony. You can stand on our stage 
and you can whisper. You can whisper really, really low. And anyone sitting the furthest seat away uh, can hear clearly what you're saying. And that's, you know, that's really great success. So we're going to do this whisper test of the stairs. At the moment, you're up at the highest point of the Larga Contigo, and I'm at the stage. If you look around, we've got specially designed acoustic panel, and that panel is dispersing the sound so that it travels all around in the air. Also, if you look at the ceiling and the sides, they're all angled, and those angles project the sound from the stage right up to where you are on the balcony. You want to sit? Louise, good to meet you. Me I, go, I go by Mike. Nice to meet you, Mike. Yeah. I retired in January, um, but before I retired, I had decided that I was going to apply for uh, Fulbright. Uh, I'm one of 14 Fulbrighters uh, from the U.S. in Ireland. Michael Dawson was also a Fulbrighter from Ireland to the U.S. to work on his doctorate. And my teaching here has been fun. Conducting this ensemble, the, the uh, M's Chamber Choir. I'm working with Michael. We're both co-conducting Korfingal. Uh, and then on Friday evenings, I have a, a conducting class made up of wonderful human beings who want to get better at the art. It's a, um, an audition to ensemble, the, the M's Chamber Choir. I think we've had 12 rehearsals, so uh, and that's pretty good. I'm I'm happy for what they they have learned. When I leave, Michael's going to take right on over, and he's going to have a wonderful choir with people who love him deeply. In Ireland, most of the choirs sing a cappella or they sing with orchestra. Four out of the ten pieces that we have on this concert are with piano. So we're using Roderick Williams, who's known as a baritone primarily. We're using his piece, O Guiding Night, which is a really tough piece for us. Um, we're 22 singers, uh, and tonight we were 20, 19, 18, so a little smaller than normal. It's an important part of a choral director not only to honor the past, but to look to the future. And so in the program we're doing with Ims, for instance, this, this concert has a lot of female composers. We tried to really feature some of them. And some of the works are kind of a little different. We've got Jocelyn Hagen and we've got Elaine Hagenberg and we've got uh, Lucy uh, Cook. Um, and I've gotten to know um, some really fine Rona Clark and, and uh, Laura Shields. And, and there's just this body of Irish women that are coming up and there's there's some encouragement going on. Give me a good solid start. Lucy Cook's piece, which is um, kind of a, a hypnotic chant where the piano is there and there's this, it's they are mother and it refers to we are all part of mother, whether that's the, the earth, the skies, whatever that is, but it has this um, kind of, I want to call it a drone, but it says ma, 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 and then it uses some other characters in there with this uh, trio of soloists um, to try and get this, this uh, kind of, I would say, almost sassiness. 
we're finding all these manuscripts in, in historical records that are female, and we didn't know they were female. And why didn't we know these pieces? Because they're fabulous. And so there's a lot of that that we're trying now to, okay, we've got these young people. Let's make sure we, we do something to get them going. He shall not hear the bittern cry in the wild sky where he is laying, nor voices of the sweet... I taught for 50 years in the States. I taught uh, all levels from high school and church work all the way up through college. And uh, in that period of time, I um, was very active in the, in the role of uh, the American Choral Directors Association. I served as president of the National Convention, or the National uh, Association of about 20,000 choral directors in the States. It's a path where doors opened and I walked through. Uh, I always say that uh, God has a, a wonderful hand in just kind of giving us a picture of what we could do. And so, um, the groups I have conducted go from 200 uh, community, uh, symphonic community groups, um, which I conducted in Los Angeles, uh, in Long Beach, where I started my, my career, and then also uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona, and then finally Miami and Tampa Bay. I was uh, flying and doing uh, symphonic work. In your career as well, you've worked with a lot of choir conductors and composers such as Eric Whitaker. Um, I met Eric when I think he was 19 or 20. Um, I was doing a master class in conducting for the Western, what was then called the Western Division of um, ACDA. Uh, I think it was uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas is where uh, Eric was at the time. And it took him a while to get through school there, you know, I can tell you that. He found choral music, I think, late in terms of where most people, I found it early on in my career, my life. It became my passion. Eric then brought pieces to me, pieces like um, Cloudburst and Water Night. First pieces were pieces that were written for high school choir, or in one case, the Water Night was written for um, a competition. And so Eric and I struck up um, this relationship where he would ask me to critique some of his music, and or you know, for instance, Cloudburst was a little longer, and we made some judicious cuts, and then finally got published and. I published um, with, at the time, Walton Music, probably 20 or 25 of his early pieces, all the way through to maybe 2007 or so. He was just a gifted young man and imaginative. What he's done with the mass choirs that he conducts, the virtual choirs, and his interest in not just one form, but also doing things that are for strings or reworking a piece that then becomes a band piece, so like Omanu Mysterium or, or something along those lines, you know, where he does a piece, uh, Equus as another piece, not, not Omanu Mysterium. But like many composers, they're taking a piece of music and then they reframe it or rework it for another piece. And we see that as well in Bach and we see that as well in other music. And I've commissioned uh, a number of pieces through Eric, you know, Luke Sabrumque and, and uh, Five Hebrew Love Songs and those things. And I, I see that as one of the things that 
I was gifted with with my college teacher. And that college teacher was always performing new music. And I think it's, it's an important part of a choral director not only to honor the past, but to look to the future. Jocelyn Hagen is a, a young, brilliant, brilliant female composer in the States. Um, she has a piece on a stunning little piece. It's a miniature of the program. What you're hearing here is a piece that's a cappella, so it's without piano. The composition is weaving the needle and the thread. Needle, that's where the L goes. Needle, not needle. They want to sing needle. Sound is what just really throws the pitch out. I've got the needle. I've got the needle, and you've got. I've got the needle. And then of needle, needle. I put the L on the very end, and we correct that. And that becomes part of the, the issue of, of trying to get the, the sound to work. Because the L sound um, will close the vowel. So, needle, it closes, and it sounds flat. So that's going to that's gonna hamper our, our intonation. And what? But we ended You know, I just, I, I hope the void I see of female choral composers uh, in the catalogs of the two major publishers here will become more balanced, I guess is a nice way of putting that. You know, I, I always think about impressionistic painting. Impressionistic painting, when you go up real close, you see lots of colors. But when you stand away, you see a landscape or you see flowers or whatever. And I look at that as a choral, the same idea. You have all of these colors and you don't want to impinge any of those colors. You just want to unify those colors so that the, the oral picture that comes out to the audience is this beautiful warm sound that engages them, that gets them saying, hey, I really love this choir. Joe Michael Scheiber there, and the reporter was Louise McMahon. You heard the voices of the IIMS Chamber Choir singing at the Lark in Balbriggan. Now, three recent major exhibitions, Women in Revolt at Tate Britain, Three Sisters at the Barbican Art Gallery, and Ridiculous at the Nottingham Contemporary, as well as the first solo show by a woman artist at the main gallery of the RA, Marina Abramovich, suggests that art institutions in the UK are belatedly engaging with feminist practice. Part of this overdue wave, if that's what it is, might be French-born US artist Nicole Eisenman's show at London's Whitechapel Gallery, a retrospective 
Collective, which looks at 30 years of the artist's work. Orit Gatt has been walking that show, called What Happened, from where she sends her latest voice notes. Out the window, the moon is full and bright, and the hands of the wear artist have already turned into hairy paws. It must be hard to hold the paintbrush that way. But then, what else could he do? This painting, made in 2007 and called Wear Artist, is a personal reflection by American painter Nicole Eisenman on what making art must feel like. But then, have we not all been the wear artist at some point, feeling our hands become wolf-like, cumbersome, hard to use in front of something we want dearly, something that feels hard, maybe impossible, definitely scary. Still, we try. There's a famous feminist saying that the personal is political. The personal is one way into this exhibition. Nicole Eisenman, What Happened? at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. These paintings and sculptures about art and life are what makes Eisenman's work so compelling. While they touch on global politics, they also feature herself and friends and lovers and never look away from how these relationships happen within a society. Two paintings from 2008 and 2009 show Eisenman and her friends, like artists Ulrika Muller and A.K. Burns, sitting in beer gardens. It's where we go to socialize, to commiserate about how the world is a messed up place, Eisenman describes. The spaces are quite dark, even though you can see the fairy lights hanging from the trees in the full-to-the-brim gardens. Many of the figures don't seem to relate to one another. They are paintings of proximity, but not intimacy. Still, they feature Eisenman in a self-portrait with her friends, because in Eisenman's painting, the messed-up place she is talking about is very populated. There's another bar painting, which is my favorite, called Sloppy Barroom Kiss, from 2011. In the front of the canvas, there are two people embracing in a drunken, tired way. Their heads lean on the table, melting into one another. There are three empty drink bottles on the table, and in the background is the bar itself, with a stern-looking bartender and two patrons sitting alone on stools. There's the sign, bar, in the window, in a bright, creamy yellow, and one table with three male customers, and then this couple, alone, in their own world. If I make it sound romantic, that's because it is. In Morning Studio 2016, there are two women, one of them shirtless, entangled in an embrace on a couch. Next to them, there's a milk crate with an empty tuna can used as an ashtray. In the background is a projection of a desktop with that familiar Apple Galaxy screensaver. They're lying in the light of those digital stars. It's a familiar view of the artist's studio, the crappy furniture, the milk crate used for a stand, the prominence of the computer screen, and of life distracting from work. The romance is somehow realistic. Eisenman makes work that truly draws on the day-to-day, -day, but also reflects the politics of the day. In the penultimate room of the exhibition, this close attention Eisenman pays to people around her is directed at the politics of today. This show features a model of procession, the massive sculpture Eisenman made for the 2019 Whitney Biennial in New York. It was meant to go on the museum's huge terrace, but Eisenman, along with other artists in the Biennial, threatened to pull it from the show unless Warren Canders, who owns a chemical weapon company that produces tear gas used against protesters in the U.S., Turkey, and Palestine, among many other places, 
resigned from the museum's board. After he did, this work, which features a huge group of people carrying weighty objects, has become symbolic of artists' resistance. Here, it is on view next to the painting Tea Party from 2011, in which a group of preppers are sitting in a bunker. They seem totally exhausted with life, and they should really be careful with the dynamite and guns that they're handling there. There's a general sense of tragedy that envelops us sometimes when we think, or think enough, about how terrible the world we live in is. In Eisenman's work, this tragedy blends again with life. The show concludes with a massive reproduction of her recent painting, The Abolitionists in the Park. It shows a group of people, including some of Eisenman's friends, in front of City Hall in New York City. They are occupying the park as a coalition of activists associated with the Black Lives Matter movement and the cult to defund the New York City Police Department. It's the perfect conclusion to an exhibition called What Happened, another example of Eisenman's special mix of the personal, her friends, her city, her lifetime, with the historical political context. The two are always intertwined. The abolitionists share that final room with Maker's Muck from 2022, a sculpture of a sculptor at work at a potter's wheel. It's kinetic, but the only thing that's moving is the shapeless blob of muck against the five chunky fingers of the sculptor. It's massive, more than life-size, and it takes up the whole room. It's dusty and messy and is named after the paint tube called Muck, a shade of cement-like gray made by the maker's company, which is scattered all over the sculpture. Spread next to the figure are other small sculptures, leftover chunks of muck and other accoutrements of making. It's funny and charming, and it touches on the ridiculous that there's a large motor in there just for the wheel to turn and make this haunting, clunky noise as the muck touches the fingers, to be honest, more like five thumbs, of this massive sculpture working on its sculpture. I look at this and remember the sexy pottery scene in the movie Ghosts with the Moore and Patrick Swayze. He's shirtless, she's not wearing any trousers, as she guides his hands over the pottery wheel. I then think about the sculpture's chubby thumbs. It's still romantic, at least to me, because Eisenman feels like the wear artist and sees that sloppy barkis and reflects the messed upness of the world. Her work is political and pays all this attention to the world around her, but there's also this side to it. Intimate, sweet, joyful, funny, and just a little bit grotesque. It feels like the truest and best version of the world I could imagine. Orit Gat there and Nicole Eisenman, What Happened runs at Whitechapel Gallery until January 14th. And finally this time on Culture File, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, Don't You Love Them? Doesn't your heart swell when they pop up in another chunk of prestige TV or shot of art house vibe cinema? But surely you're not one of those people who thinks wonderful music can somehow be damaged by being heard. Often, violinist Patrick Rafter certainly isn't one of that lot. He's fulfilled a long-held dream of creating a new music festival, the Marvel City Music Festival, in his home city of Kilkenny, the first of many editions of which is happening this coming weekend. The weekend's very first edition heavily features the four seasons, with Patrick in action with the RTE Contempo Quartet – 
sharing his hots for Vivaldi, which he also did recently in a fireside chat with Culture File. It's an amazing piece of music in the sense that it's very popular and as for film soundtracks, it's yes. just never-ending. And that kind of, like, how can that not... How could it possibly impair music as brilliant as that? But also, how can it not? It's a really kind of complicated thing. Tell us about the four seasons in your head. How do you feel about it? I I just feel that they're amazing works. They're one of the works that I first heard Nigel Kendi play. And it was just incredible listening to him because it brought so much joy to him. You could see he was smiling his head off on stage. Smiling, laughing, engaging with the musicians because there's so much chamber music between the soloists and you know like the trills of the birds in spring. It's really, really cool. And I just think they're really iconic. They're obviously really tricky and fiendishly difficult, but that's not what it's about. I think it's just about this incredible connection with nature. To me, it's that perfect Venn diagram intersection between reaching everybody in the world. Everybody in the world can really adore these pieces, be involved regardless if you know the, a violin from a clarinet to a double bass. It doesn't make a difference. These pieces you can really get your teeth stuck into. That's the first thing. But then, from a classical musician point of view, they are iconic, they're amazing. They are little genius gems of work. One of the brilliant things about them is that inscribed in all of the scores that Vivaldi wrote, there are words. Now, there are claims to the contrary saying that Vivaldi didn't write these sonnets. I truly believe that they are written by Vivaldi because they match the, the, the music so well, the technique involved of the solo violinist or the orchestral accompaniment, they match it so perfectly. I can't imagine how somebody who's not a musician could have written it so aptly. It's, I think it's impossible. I'm going to read you out a few of them. Okay, but my favourite ones. What, what language are they in? Would they have been in some Venetian dialect to begin with? So, I have the English version here, which I think will suit us the best. So, the famous one, I'll go with Spring, and it starts with this. So you can imagine Of course, the one that everybody knows. And when I'm reading my music, I have this written above it. Springtime is upon us. And then, you know, there's the sections that comes later with the three violins going like all these trills and things. And it says, the birds celebrate her return with festive song. And then you go away and then there's a and it's like really loud and heavy strings and it's thunderstorms. Those heralds of spring roar, casting their dark mantle over heaven. And it goes back to the birds and it says above this part, they die away to silence and the birds take up their charming songs once more. First vision of Marble City Music Festival is to welcome people. That's the first idea I had was that we would have sharing of stories from the stage. Sometimes people are quite shy about that, as though it's not a real concert if you actually explain anything or, or say I'm about to play. All of that seems to be, you know, um, somewhat frowned upon. There is. For, for some reason, I think it's a traditional thing in classical music that people very often don't speak. But there are tradition, traditions that are brilliant and there are some traditions that aren't so great. And we know that from history. There are some traditions that should be kept and upheld because they serve a brilliant purpose. But I think... 
that the need that people have for classical music in 2023 is connection, is communication, is that support, and is that um, joy and incredible um, inspiration that classical music provides. And so for me, there are, are traditions to be held and some not to be held, and I don't appreciate and I don't see from experience the value of being a chatter on stage, talking to people and seeing the effect my story has on people and how it's broken down any barrier there. That's an amazing thing. And so I want it to be one of the principal themes of the festival is that communication, that physical talking with the audience and obviously sharing through the music. Patrick Rafter there on Vivaldi and the inaugural Marble City Music Festival, which, as we said, takes place in Kilkenny this weekend. Tickets have moved with the speed you might expect, but at time of recording there were some left for Vivaldi Four Seasons with Patrick Rafter this coming Sunday, 3rd of December at 1pm on marblecityfestival.com. But if you miss them, watch out for next year's planned spring and winter editions of the Marble City Music Festival. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more classical disobedience next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.